Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through the end of the chapter. Let's pray. Lord, I pray now that I might be spirit-filled, that the message might be from your word, from you, that it might challenge our hearts, Lord, that we might be spirit-filled listeners so that we would be obedient to the word and not just hearers only. Lord, I pray that I might be spirit-filled, that you might minister to our hearts. Lord, I pray that if there are any here that do not know you, they are on the horns of decision like some of these when this book was written. Or that you would give them the hope, that you would draw them to yourself, that today might be the day of their salvation. And Lord, for we as believers, that we would not draw back. Lord, there's lots of things going on in our, on our times, and Paul told Timothy, in those last days, perilous times will come. But Lord, that we would just look up, give our attention to you, that you might find us faithful in our time, in our place. Equip us from your word today, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. The message is entitled, Decision. When I was growing up, we didn't have TV in our house. We had radio. It wasn't because it wasn't invented yet. I'm not that old. In fact, we did have a TV when I was little. And I would watch the Lone Ranger, Roy Rogers, the Mickey Mouse Club, all the standards. But in those days, TVs didn't always act right, and they'd start rolling, and I, I don't remember this, but my mom said I would throw a fit, so they decided that maybe it's better if we didn't have TV, and that was a good decision for me, because we learned how to read. Every week, we go to the library, and reading for me is like watching a movie. I just love to read, and it just unfolds before me, and I'm thankful for that, because it's been a great help to me in the ministry. I run into people today, I just don't like to read. I'm like, oh, I just feel bad for you. Reading is such a blessing for me. But we would listen to the radio, and on Saturdays, and the Cowboys, the basketball Cowboys were praying during the week, sometimes we'd listen to them, and listen every Saturday to the football uh, Cowboys, and I remember the first time in 1968 actually coming to War Memorial Stadium, and oh, wow, what experience that was, to actually see what I've been listening to on the radio. But the voice of the Cowboys did it for us, and we listened to the radio, we listened to a fellow named Carl McIntyre, he was a Presbyterian pastor, and he was railing against the evils of communism, and he would, he would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had a fellow that was with him on the radio. His name was Amen Charlie. I remember Amen Charlie. Dr. McIntyre would say something, and Charlie would say, Amen, brother. But you know, every Saturday would come on the hour of decision and that was Billy Graham's ministry on the radio. So every Saturday would be the hour of decision. And as we had opportunity, we would listen as Billy Graham would share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because every time the gospel is shared, there's a decision to make. For those that don't know Christ, you decide to follow Christ or you decide to reject the message. Now we know when Paul preached, he said at one time that he was there on uh, Mars Hill and he was preaching to them the God that they had named, the unknown God. And at the end, most people said, ah, this guy is nuts. Some followed him and they believed, but some said, well, let's listen, listen to him again. And we like to think, well, they didn't really reject. Yes, they did. At that time, they rejected 
the message of the gospel. And Billy Graham knew that every time the gospel was preached, there's an opportunity for you to make a decision for Christ. In Joshua 24, 15, Joshua's coming to the end of his life. He's taken over for um, Moses, one of the greatest leaders the world has ever seen. He's led the children of Israel into the promised land, and they've taken a portion of it, not all of it. His life is ending, and so he challenges them. Joshua 24, 15. And he lays out everything that God has done for them, taking them out of Egypt, giving them the land, and, and protecting them and providing for them. And then he says, and if it is evil, seems evil unto you to serve the Lord... Choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which were your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He called them to decision. John MacArthur says about this passage, there are only two possible consequences to knowing the gospel. When a person knows the truth of the gospel, he goes on to believe or he falls back to apostasy. Salvation involves faith, hope, and love. It is these three aspects of salvation that are focused on in this passage today. 1 Corinthians 13, 30, 13 says, And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now in verses 19 through 21, we see faith. Verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. You see, his sacrifice is our confidence. We read in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. Therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace in time of need. You'll find help. Well, what is our confidence? It's not our own works. It's not how good a Christian we've been. We come to the throne of grace because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And his blood. We don't come with our record. We don't come with our financial statement. Well, look how much I've given, Lord, because nobody has given as much as Jesus gave. And all of our righteousness, as good as any human has been, in God's sight, are filthy, leprous rags. And we but we can come confidently, and the invitation is come into grace, trust Jesus. Come all the way into the holy place on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, we've looked in the Old Testament. Those sacrifices were given over and over and over again. And only the whole high priest, only once a year, could enter into the Holy of Holies. It was a fearful place. So for the writer of Hebrews to invite Jewish people come into the presence of God, that's something they've never heard before. That was not a possibility before. But now it is because verse 20 says, a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. The new and living way is his flesh. While Jesus was ministering before he died, you still could not go into the Holy of Holies. The word new means flesh freshly slaughtered. We see a picture of that in Revelation chapter, one, chapter 5. When, when John is standing by a vision in that great stadium of worship, that's what I call it. And a question goes out, who is able to redeem the earth? Who is worthy to take back the earth and redeem it to God? 
and a search is done in heaven, in the seas, and no one is found. And John in the, in the vision is seeing, feels it so deeply because the world is so cursed by sin. It's hurting so bad and violence that goes on and the sin that continues. And so he begins to weep greatly. What? There's no answer? And the elder standing next to him says, John, stop weeping. We're not done yet. And then he says, the lion of the tribe of Judah steps out. And John gets a first glimpse of the glorified Savior. And he says, I saw a lamb freshly slain. What does that mean? You and I, we grow older. Those injuries we got playing peewee football start showing up pretty early. Maybe you were born with a birth defect. Maybe an accident has caused a maiming or an injury. The Bible says when we get to heaven, we're going to be made perfect. More than perfect, we're going to be in his image. But Jesus will still have the marks of the crucifixion. And we will glory in that victory. Because Jesus did not die in defeat. He died in victory. And we will joy that he loved us that much. And for all eternity, we will plumb the depths of his wisdom, his beauty, and his grace. And it will just cause greater and greater worship. Listen, individual, if you don't like worship today, you're not going to like heaven. Because that's what it is for all eternity, worshiping God without hindrance, worshiping Him. And then the Lamb steps out and He sees that picture of the Lamb freshly slain. The new way was, the, was His flesh. But when His flesh was laid down, when He sacrificed His blood and He died, a way into God's presence was made. Not just into the temple but all the way into the presence of God, we can stand and glorify Him one day. John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, and he says, little children, now we are the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. We will stand in His presence Right now, if you know Jesus, you possess eternal life. And even though you're still in this flesh, God looks at you as perfect. Even though you're still in the process of sanctification, one day you're going to stand before Him holy, perfected. And the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5.24, Faithful is he that calls will also bring it to pass. As you're struggling in this life, just know this, have the hope that God is not done with you yet. But the primary basis on which we can draw near to God in faith is the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Again, there's that picture of the high priest. We read earlier in the book of Hebrews that God had humans be priests so they would understand the frailty of the flesh, that they would have mercy and they'd be able to be tender-hearted towards people but I'll tell you, based upon the gospel and, our, and the testimony of Jesus Christ, the, the high priest of Israel were not like that. And yet these people were thinking to go back to that. 
Maybe you were raised in a tradition where the gospel, it wasn't about the gospel, it was about rules and regulations and, and about legalism. But you say, ah, I have a hard time breaking loose because that's my family. That, that's, that's where I come from, and then I'm going to disappoint everybody. I want you to think about this. What about the disappointment of the one who died for you? What about his feelings in this thing? The one who died on purpose for you so that if you're the only one that ever would have trusted him, he still would have died for you. That's the accountability of the gospel. It is personal. And yet these people probably, because of per- persecution and, and fear, are beginning to think, well, maybe we just need to go back. He says, no, no, you have a high priest that cares for you. And even though he died for you, he's the one that comes back and presents his blood for you. And he pleads for you daily. We read the verse in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so John writes that and he says, the little children, the next chapter, I write these things to you, sin not. Now, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. You're not, you don't belong to Jesus. Because Christians know they have problems. That their salvation isn't based upon their works or their performance. It's based on what Jesus did. And so we're still stumbling. We still sin. But because we have the witness of the Spirit, then the mark of the believer is we're always confessing our sin. We can be transparent because it's not about us. Pharisees have to cover it up. They have to pretend like it wasn't that bad, compare themselves to other people. But Christians can be transparent because it's not about our righteousness, it's about God's righteousness, and he forgives us over and over again. And he comes to the second chapter of 1 John, and he says, Now, little children, I, I write these things that you sin not, but remember, if any man sins, he has an advocate, he has an attorney with the Father that stands there pleading your case for him. Father, we can forgive him because I shed my blood for that sin. He pleads for us. He ministers to us. He leads us. In the paths of righteousness, he protects, he provides, he knows our beginning and our end, he knows our giftedness, he knows our, he knows our opportunity, and he wants us to finish victoriously. He wants that for us. We have that high priest that cares for us. So verse 22 and 23 is the hope, the hope of the Christian life. So he said, let us draw near with a sincere heart. That word sincere is a Greek word that means without wax. You say, well, how is that sincere? Well, when potters would make a vessel to sell, if there was an imperfection, they'd just color some wax and put it in the cracks, and, and then there you go, good pot. You say, when well, he cracks, oh, yeah, I'm sincere. <laughs> without wax, there's no wax in this one. But if you held it up and put it in the sun, guess what happens to the wax? It would melt. And he said, we need to come to God with an honest heart, Because our hope is in him. And it says, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Some would say that's positional sanctification and practical sanctification. That God has paid for all of our sins. When Jesus died on the cross, all of your sins were future. So he didn't give you eternal life based on your performance. Well, you got eternal life unless you mess up and then you lose it. No, no, no. He paid for all those sins. You belong to him. But because you have eternal life, it said there in 1 John 3, 
Everyone that has this hope of seeing Jesus purifies himself. You want to be clean. That's just part of the DNA of being a believer. It's not knowing some facts about Jesus. It's not saying a little magical mantra, okay, Jesus, come in my heart. Okay, now I'm okay. No, you, you've possessed new life, and that life is Christ's life, and you desire to please God the Father, even as the Son, Jesus Christ, desired to please God the Father. 2 Corinthians 5 said we have this one principle above everything else, whether we're separated from God and we're not in heaven and we're here in this body, we're absent from the body and we're present with the Lord, we have this one purpose, and that is to be pleasing unto Him. That's what your desire is. Yeah, you might mess up, you sin, you, you wander, but you can't deny the life. And so you come back, you say, Lord, I want to please you. I want to be a blessing to your name. Verse 29, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The Puritans called that the perseverance of the saints. We know that we have responsibility. God has chosen people to be saved. We only got saved because he opened our eyes to our problem. Nobody comes to Christ because they got smart enough. No, no. The Bible says in, in John 1, 12, as many as received him, to them gave the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, the next verse, not of blood, not because your parents were Christians, nor by the will of flesh, you just didn't figure it out one day. It was God's spirit that opened your eyes. Nor by the will of man. Somebody else couldn't put you into the kingdom. The Lord Jesus brought you himself. He's that high priest that brings you. And because you have that confidence, that hope, you cling to him. There's, no, there's nothing else but that hope. A Christian without hope, that's just an irony. Now, John, uh, John MacArthur says, in order for a person to be saved, there are three things that have to help happen for saving faith. Number one, there's felt need. Faith cannot begin unless, until a person realizes his need for salvation. I realize that in our desire to see our friends come to Christ, and in some churches with little kids, because you can manipulate little kids pretty easy, even teenagers, that we say, well, just say this prayer like somehow it's the magical uh, saying from Arabian Nights, open sesame. If you never figured that out, it's open, says me. That's just for free if you didn't know that. And so we have this little prayer. Say, oh, just ask Jesus in your heart, and you're good. And then I've heard people say, oh, my, my kids, they're just on their prodigal. Like that's somehow a part of the Christian life, to take that road into sin. Now, I know that there might be some people that sin, but the story of the prodigal is he's not a believer until he comes back to the Father. And so, in Pilgrim's Progress, Pliable is like that fellow that never had a burden of sin. And he hears about heaven, he says, well, that, that sounds like a good deal. What a wonderful place. Tell me more about that, Brother Pilgrim, Brother Christian. Tell me more about this, this wonderful place. And as they're going along, Christian tells him all that he's heard about heaven. And pretty soon, Pliable says, you know, Christian, why are we walking so slow? I think we ought to hurry. And Christian says, I... I would, but I have this terrible burden of sin on my back, and I, this is all the faster I can go. And as Christian goes to the different places, nobody tries to take the, back, the, the burden off. 
The Lord has to release the burden. And so as much as we want people to come to Christ, that's not our job to relieve the burden of sin or to somehow take it away or get, hey, just say this prayer, and yet we've done that. I've seen the results. Hey, just say this prayer, and you're good. You're good. Yep, because the Bible says, you know, just say this prayer. There's no, nowhere in Scripture that says, ask Jesus in your heart. Now, we, we take that because we know the Spirit lives within when we're saved. Now, I'm not saying you're not saved because you said that prayer. But it's more than words. It's the heart. It's that sincere heart that realized they were lost without Christ. It was a burden of sin. And I tell you, when a person begins to feel that, that's when you go to praying. My son David's ministering in Germany, and he, he calls because we have the great advantage of FaceTime now, and it's free. And so whether it's audio or visual, we have free, free talking, which used to just cost a fortune to talk to somebody overseas, and he gives us the reports of people that are coming to Christ. He told of us of one of the Syrian refugees, and uh, they were getting to know one another because they, they don't speak each other's language. They don't speak German, so David's, that's the common language. He's teaching them German, so they're trying to communicate in German, and uh, they're inducing one another, and the one fella from Syria, yes, I'm a Christian, but he's not. Uh, he's a He's a Muslim. The guy says, I'm not a Muslim. I'm a Christian. He said, we have a Muslim name. He said, I was born Muslim. But Jesus appeared to me in a dream. And I knew it was the truth. So I sought for a believer and he led me to Christ. What a blessing. That God is able to reach down and touch a heart. He does that sometimes. And David has a friend that he's been ministering to, friends since they, they, their kids started to school. His name is Christian. I want you to continue to pray for him. He's a medical doctor, and their kids are in the same grades. They go to the same school, so they talked to you. They got to know one another, became friends, and, and David began to share the gospel with him for three years now, and he gave him Francis Chan's crazy love, and, and he realized that he needed to love Jesus, and he wanted to love Jesus, and now they're in a study of the gospel and when Christian told his wife one time, hey, you know, I'm, I'm really, I want to check this out. She said, that's fine for you. That's good. But this last week or so, he came home and he understands the gospel now. And David said, I think any, any day it's, he's going to tell me I received Christ. But he said, I am not touching that. God is able to do that. And Christian went home and told his wife what he understood not about the gospel. She said, oh, I believe that too. See, God is able to do that. So every week I anticipate what Dave calls after that Bible study that Christian has become a Christian. You pray for him. You've been praying for that family, many of you. Christian and his wife had twins, and one of the twins was very sick and had to have a serious operation. You were praying, and God healed that baby, and, and uh, the doctors uh, did the surgery, and it was successful, and that's a healthy baby boy now. You're part of that because you prayed. And you're part of it because you give. And one day when Christian, we see Christian in heaven, you can say, oh, I prayed for you. I heard about you. What an opportunity that we have to be involved in this great joy of sharing the gospel. But a person has to feel it, but only the Holy Spirit can do that. You share the gospel. You share that man's in trouble. But God's the one that puts the burden on. The second part of saving faith is content. 
It's content. They don't need to be a theologian, but they need to understand that they're a sinner, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sin, and he offers salvation. And then God gives that hope. Even the faith to believe is not from us. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. So that day, when you think back, when you receive Christ, the light finally went on. We heard a testimony like that Jim shared in the waters of baptism. He said, I was driving in to church, and all of a sudden it hit me. It just hit me like a ton of bricks. I believe. I'm saved. That was God. It's content. So when people share their testimony to join the church, we ask them, and a lot of people say, well, I've always been a Christian. No, you haven't. We hear kind of regularly, more than we want to, when we go to sometimes Southern Baptist meetings, we hear about Baptist life. And I'm not sure how that's spelled, but not the same way you would spell it probably. Baptist life. We hear how I've been a Baptist nine months before I was born. Really? How is that even possible according to your doctrinal statement? It's not. But, you know, being a part of Baptist life, it's just a cultural thing. There has to be a point of decision in every person's life. Even if you grew up in the best home where Jesus was demonstrated and shared, there needs to be a point of decision. I'm not saying you've got to know the day, but you remember the time that all of a sudden you had to reach out and say, Oh, Lord, I'm lost. I need you to be my Savior. Based upon the content of the gospel. And the third part of saving faith is commitment. That you've counted the cost. I'm going to follow Christ because that's the invitation. I'm going to follow Christ. Matthew eleven twelve. There's this. It just. There's this really favorite part of mine in Pilgrim's Progress. There's a lot of them because I share you about with them, and you ought to read that. Don has several copies in modern English, so you talk to him, you can get one. But Matthew eleven twelve says this. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violent, and violent men take it by force. Now, what does that mean? Well, John Bunyan explained it with a picture. Before Christian has trusted Christ and the burden of sin has been relieved, he stops at interpreter's house. An interpreter gives him some encouragement from the word about what he's going to find on his journey. And what he's saying is, Christian, you're going to have to be serious about this. This isn't something you just say and then, you know, you just live your life how you want to. No, this is serious commitment. And he kind of takes him out and shows him a picture, kind of a vision of what the Christian life is. And he sees people walking on the rooftop of heaven, as it were. And he sees them dressed in the beautiful clothes that the king has dressed them in. And he sees it, gets a glimpse of their life. He says, oh, I want to go in there. I want to get in there. He says, well, that's fine. He says, look at the gate. In front of the gate, there are very dangerous men armed to the teeth. And it seems that you have to break through those men to get into heaven. No, he's not saying you have to earn your salvation. He's just saying once you've decided to follow Christ, your salvation is paid for, but you have to be committed. And there's a great host of men that are standing by the table, and they just are not yet committed to actually fight through and lay hold of eternal life. Not willing to take it by force. 
until one young man comes and he's armed and he comes to the man at the table and he says, put my name down. And then he rushes at the enemy and it says, after giving and receiving many blows, he breaks through and he hears sung from the tops of heaven, come in, come in, eternal glory thou shalt win. Oh, it's going to cost you. But oh, the glory of living a life that's faithful to Jesus Christ. See, it's not just salvation. It's when you count the cost. In one of my Bible studies, we're going through Luke 13 this last week. And every time Jesus begins to gather a large crowd, then he gets back to the gospel, and then he thins it out again. Because somebody's just said, oh, blessed is everybody that's going to sit at the table. Like, they thought they were in because they were Jewish, and they just didn't matter what you say, Lord. You try to give them instruction, and they just kind of cast that aside. And this is great, great crowds were following him. And he says, unless you hate father and mother and sister, for my sake, you can't be part of this. What? We got to hate? No. But if you love Jesus, if you're filled with the love of Christ, that's what your family's going to accuse you of if they don't know him. You hate us. All you care about is Jesus. And you have to say, amen and amen. I care about you, but I care more about Jesus. He is my life. And because I care about Jesus, I can love you better. But that's not what the lost will accuse you of. They'll accuse you of hating. And then he says, and if you don't take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. See, there's, there, there's, the Bible doesn't talk about, you know, hey, you can get, you know, stage one salvation. That is where you get to live your own life, but you still get to go to heaven. The Bible doesn't offer that. And I realize the Bible does say there's some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. But it doesn't say there's, you know, hey, just live your life. That's not the life of Christ in a person. He says, so if you don't take up your cross, you can't be my disciple. And then he gives some illustrations there in 13, Luke. He says, if a man is going to build a tower, he considers if he has the money to finish the tower. Otherwise, he becomes kind of a laughingstock. And so you have to decide, are you going to finish this thing? And if you're a king and you see another king coming to you in battle, you have to sit down and think, now, do I have the soldiers to meet this guy and be victorious, or do I send out and ask for a treaty of peace? What is he saying? If you're going to be my disciple, you've got to give everything. And then he says, if you don't hate your own life, you can't be my disciple. What is he saying? Because he talks about salt and light, and the salt losing its savor right there. And Dr. Bragg said, you know, fellas, this was such a blessing to me. That's why I go to small group. Not for what I can give, but for what I get every single week. He said, you know, sodium chloride, that's salt. That's what it is. It's very basic. And I think what the Lord's saying is don't add anything to Christ. You hear a lot of people, I'm a Christian this, I'm a Christian cowboy, Christian athlete, Christian this, Christian that. So they can somehow make their Christianity more palatable to the world. No, you just Christ. Christ. You may have those other opportunities for a platform for ministry, and the Bible says whatever God has put in your hand, do it hardly unto the Lord, but don't add anything to the gospel. Don't add anything to Jesus. It's just Christ. Otherwise, we lose our saltiness. We dilute the power of the gospel. He said you need to be committed 
to see this thing through to the end. And that's where the folks in Hebrews are, are kind of struggling. Because they're seeing the cost. It's going to say at the end of this chapter, they've already given up some of their property. Now they're saying, hold it, you know, maybe, maybe this isn't it. And they're beginning to doubt. They're beginning to have fears. So he says, you need to hold fast and hope. Not hope so, but know beyond a shadow of doubt. That's what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.12. For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. He is able. It's not me. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to hold fast. I love to hold my grandkids. I love when they run. Say, hey, Papa, and they're glad to see me. Because even when they're in trouble with mom and dad, they're never in trouble with me. Never. And I pick them up and I carry them. When they get old enough, I love it when they get to be toddlers about Macy's size. And you pick them up and they're holding on to you. But that's not what's keeping her up. Macy's not keeping herself up. I'm holding her. But because she loves me and she puts her trust in me, those babies hold on to you because they love you. That's the perseverance of the saint. You hold on to Christ not because you're the one keeping yourself, but because you know that's your life. That's your comfort. That's your safety. And like the Apostle Paul who had been through so many things, he said, I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor principalities nor powers nor things present or things to come nor any other created being shall be able to separate me from the love that's in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he was kept by the power of God. It says that, let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We hold fast because he is faithful. And the writer of a psalm, Psalm 23, says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because what? God is with me. But God uses those trials to strengthen us, to stretch our capacity for his love and for hope. And Paul says in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But not just this. Not just that. As a mature believer, Paul could say, I glory in tribulations also. Why? Because he got to see God work personally in his life over and over and over again. And now I know that tribulation trials work patience. What's patience? The ability to endure. Discomfort even pain. It's just time in the gym. That's all it is. We, we have athletes, men and women in our church, and they go to the gym, and, and uh, Zach, they're at the university, Zach puts them through all kinds of pain. Why? So when it comes to the field of battle, those young men have the wherewithal to keep going and not quit. The old coach of the Green Bay Packers, Vince Lombardi, said, Fatigue makes cowards of us all. It does. I remember the first time I got fatigued, I had the flu before my first day of seventh grade football. And I've been looking forward to being a bull pup since I landed in Wheatland in the fourth grade. And oh, I could hardly wait to be a bull pup and put on that green uniform. And then I got the flu. So I missed the first day of football. And then I went out. I just, my mom said, You need to stay home. No, I got to play football. I got out there and I spent most of the day against the fence feeling sick because I wasn't healthy and asking myself, 
Why did you like football so much? I don't know. I don't really like football. Because I was sick. And when we get fatigued because we're not feeding on the word of God and we're not serving the Lord, we're not in the way of faith, and then we get sick and we get fatigued and we say, oh, I don't know if it's worth it or not. I'm just not sure. Paul said, no, no, no. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. The Greek word is hypernico, from we which get the, the English word supernike. We overwhelmingly conquer because as I've found that nothing can separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. So Paul said, I glory in tribulation, Romans 5, because tribulation works the ability to endure. And patience, experience, why? Because when you've been there before and you remember how God works it, well, this is easy, God's, God's got this. I can trust him. You find the mature believer doesn't get all crazy when trials come anymore. Oh, we're just going to see what God's going to do. Wow, this is going to be exciting. I hear that on our board all the time. We come to a crisis and Rich will say, whoa, this is exciting. Wow, this is going to be something. God's going to have to save us this time. This time, he's going to have to step in. We have really messed up this time. And God does every time. How come? Because Rich knows the same thing that the Apostle Paul did. That experience is that patience and experience. And experience works hope because we've been there before. And hope makes not a shame because the love of God is spread abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit that's given unto us. Oh, great hope. Great hope. And the last point in this, in this passage is love. Faith, hope, and love. He said, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. I think it's the NIV says, let us learn how to spur one another on to love and good works. And I don't think he's talking about a bull rider spurring the bull. I think there's some Christians that kind of like to take that. Come over here so I can spur you. No. I've always enjoyed watching reining or, or cutting horses especially. Because you get a good horse and that cowboy or that cowgirl is just kind of holding on for dear life. That horse knows what he's supposed to be doing. And the rider may have spurs on, but he doesn't have to use the spurs. They're just there. Because a good horse, he just knows when the cowboy just squeezes a little bit, we're going to go forward. He sits back in his, his saddle, now we're going to slow down. And God wants our attention to be like that to him. And to one another, the best way to encourage one another to love and good works is what? Our own example of faithfulness. I don't get to talk to all of you every week, but I see you. And the one thing I don't like about when, especially when I don't get to preach, is first of all, not being in the yoke that week. But secondly is, I don't get to see all the flock. And here's the way my brain works, and I'm sure it must be how a shepherd works. You get out there, and I'm preaching, and I get back home. I said, honey, I didn't see so-and-so today. Oh, yeah, they were there. And then I think back in my mind, oh, they were sitting right over there. But when I don't preach, I don't get to sit there and minister to my flock the same way. So I don't see, but you need to know something. I see you, and you bless my heart because of your faithfulness. And I'm amazed, man. They showed up again, and they probably knew I was going to preach again, and they still came. It blesses my heart. John wrote, and he said, little children, we're the lower commanded to love our brothers. And everybody that loves his brother, there remains no area of stumbling in his life. Same thing. 
You find somebody that's gifted in an area. Maybe it's faith. Old Doug Wookie, the guy's just gifted in faith. He just believes God for everything. I call him God's spoiled brat. Because if Doug prays for something, God just gives it to him. One day, he was going on vacation. This is years ago. And Doug said, well, you know, I can't afford to go on vacation and go up and see my family unless the price drops of gas. So I'm just going to ask God to drop the price of gas. And we're like, what? Guess what? Price of gas dropped all the way he was on vacation to Canada and back. How come? <laughs> because God told him he could do that. You think God's in charge? See, all the problems that we have in our nation and around the world today, you know what the answer is? It's not better government. It's not better economic policy. It's not global warming. It's not treating terrorists better. It's God. Safety and blessing and provision comes from God. That's where it's at. And yet sometimes even in our Christian life, we get distracted and say, well, if this deal doesn't come through, and then it doesn't come through, and we just lose all our sanctification, go, blah. And that ugly stuff gets squeezed out, and we say, well, God should have put me in a trial like that. No, God put you in the trial so you could see how much ugliness is still in there, and you can't just say, well, that wasn't me. No, that was you. That was all that ugly, that sin, that anger that came out. That was you. But here's the answer. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I want to tell you something, parents. You are not perfect parents. And you're not going to fool your kids into thinking you're perfect parents. And you know what? They're not going to do what you say. They're going to do what you do. So the best thing for you to do is dads especially, because I don't know moms. Moms don't make that many mistakes. But I know we dads do, is to be transparent. And when you do, lose your temper for the wrong reason or you discipline and anger or they just bug you you sit down with your children you say will you forgive dad that was sin so my kids won't respect me don't believe that lie they'll see they got a dad that loves them more than anybody else could love them because his righteousness is not based on his performance is based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ we can be transparent and that's part of the Christian life, being encouraged. We can be transparent with one another. We don't have to put on airs and put on pharisaical robes and pretend like everything's cool all the time. We can go to our small group and say, brothers, you've got to pray for me. Sisters, you've got to pray for me. I'm really struggling in this area. And somebody's going to say, oh, man, I struggled there too. And here's what God gave me from the Word. And encourage one another to love and good works. Then it says, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. See, there's some people that think they don't need other believers. Eh, I'm good on my own. I don't like the organized church, blah, blah, blah. There's no such thing. God didn't, doesn't have this category for Christians that are so spiritual. They don't need one another. There isn't one. Look at in the scripture. Just do a word study yourself of all the one another's. Take care of one another, pray for one another, bear one another's burdens. We need one another. And the faster you realize that, the stronger you're going to be. We need one another. We need one another's prayers. We need one another's example. We need one another's accountability. Oh, there's an ugly word. Oh, well, I uh, know the Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. If you're married, you've got a really good sharpener right there, don't you? A Christian brother or sister who you're married to. You say, well, 
you know, the toughest thing in the world is to pray with my spouse. <laughs> Amen. Because they know you. That you can't fake it in front of them. You can't be flowery in your prayers. You just got to be straight on. And you know what? They'll pray for you. You'll find it's the greatest encouragement. And Satan wants you not to do that more than anything else. But don't forsake the assembling of yourself together. And then he says, and so much the more as you see the day of approaching. Oh, listen, folks, we need one another. We need to be praying for one another. We need the encouragement of one another. And then let me just finish the passage. In verses 26 through 31, he says, now here's your other option. You're standing out here thinking, well, I don't know. Do I go forward or do I just go back to what I've known before, even though I know it's not the best and, and, and he's laid it out. Jesus is better than, than angels. He's better than, than Moses. He's better than, than the prophets. He's, he's, he's the best sacrifice. He's better. His sacrifice is the perfect sacrifice. He's a better priest. Well, here's your option. If you go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there remains no sacrifice for sin. There's no longer an option. There's nothing else. God's not going to do anything else. It's so important, parents, that you make straight paths for your feet so your children will stumble. How many children grow up in a Christian home and they get done with the Christian home and say, ah, it's fine for them, but I don't want anything to do with it. Why? They stumbled over something. They stumbled over something. Because the Bible gives a promise, and the promise isn't you can't save your kids. The Bible says in Proverbs 22, 6, if you raise your kids... In the fear of the Lord, when they're old, they'll keep fearing the Lord. It doesn't say, hey, take them to Sunday school, and they'll go on their prodigal, and then at 60, just before they die, they'll get saved. There's no promise like that. It says, you make straight paths for your feet, but there's nothing else. People call uh, the church, and they say, oh, hey, listen, pastor, I'm up here in Timbuktu, and uh, my kid was raised in church, and now he wants nothing for Jesus. He's down there at University of Wyoming, living like a pagan. But I know he's saved because he got baptized when he was 12. And so, uh, would you go visit him? And we always said, well, sure. We'll try to get a hold of him. But after you got 18 years pouring into his life, how are we supposed to undo that? Do I look like a witch doctor? Hocus pocus. Forget about all that. No, no. He said, if they don't receive the gospel, there's nothing else. And that's, to me, why some of the greatest testimonies are kids that have grown up in Christian homes and they've rejected it, and then they come to Christ. Because sometimes the gospel lived ineffectively can be an inoculation against Jesus. We don't want to cause people to stumble. But he says he's not going to do anything else. All that's left is a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which consumed the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as common, unclean, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? If people in the Old Testament days just sat the law aside, they were stoned. They said, well, I'm, I'm Jewish, but I'm not going to do the law anymore. Then they took him out and they stoned him. That was severe. How much more severe when God has sent the very best, his only begotten Son, his very Son, and you say, mm, not for me. Maybe I'll do that later, but not for me. And you reject it. There's nothing else God's going to do. That's it. Only a terrifying expectation of judgment. 
For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then he goes on to encouragement. He says, but you believers, see, some of them have started out and they're fearful. As you remember the days, you've already given up so much to serve Jesus, but now you think it's too much and you're thinking about pulling back. He says in verse 32, verse 33, you were, we were made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations by becoming shares with those who so treated. You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. But now somehow... They say, I just, I can't do any more. I've suffered, I, I just can't go any further. And the writer of Hebrews said, listen, don't throw away your confidence. Verse 36, you just need endurance. You just need some grace. That's what you need. And then he goes on to quote the Old Testament. For you a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not delay. You think back, I remember I think back when I was in grade school and, and Lynn Howe was a senior in high school and I was thinking, oh, I'll never be able to get out of high school. That's going to take forever, right? And whew, it's gone. And while we're, we're serving, sometimes the road seems long, but in heaven it'll seem like nothing. So just be faithful today. He says, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But then he encourages him, and he steps from 39 into chapter 11. But we're not of those who shrink back to destruction, but those who have faith, preserving of the soul. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray the warnings of Scripture would be powerful to us. There would be no area of stumbling in our life. And Lord... If there are some here that don't know you, that we would throw everything that's hindering us aside to come to you. Lord, draw them to yourself. And we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.